Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 47. I would like to start today by again asking for some specific feedback and this time what I'm interested in is knowing how much interest there is among the listeners of the podcast in episodes that would focus entirely on endurance sports that are not triathlon. So I'm not talking about episodes that are about, for example, run training in general or bike training in general or triathlon run training specifically or triathlon bike training, but actually episodes that are, for example, dedicated to runners uh, training for the 5K or triathlons, triathletes just want to mix things up and focus on the 5K or the marathon or focus on cycling time trials or cycling road racing and so on. So I could have an episode on cycling time trialing, an episode on marathon training, things like that. Let me know if that would interest you. Email michael at scientifictriathlon.com and it's michael with a K. And let me know whether it's a yay or an A for you. If you just want me to keep doing the triathlon related episodes, then uh, I will do that if that's what uh, the feedback tells me. Because it is important to, to get this feedback so that I can go with whatever makes sense for as many listeners as possible, knowing that uh, it's not possible to please everybody 100% all the time. But I will try to do uh, what is best for the most amount of, of listeners. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And they make electrolytes that uh, help you stay hydrated and get hydrated in the first place. And how much electrolytes you should take is actually very much an individual thing. Uh, some athletes may lose very little electrolytes and sodium in particular in their sweat. And maybe something less than 500 uh, milligrams per liter. Whereas for some athletes, uh, this figure might be closer to 2000 milligrams per liter of sweat. And if you take into account that uh, the sweat rates of athletes may also vary significantly, then the total sweat sodium loss of athletes can have really, really great differences. And that is why the sweat test that Precision Hydration has designed, which is just a simple quiz, 10 questions that you take online in a few minutes time, uh, that is, uh, is so great. And it's been validated against actual sweat test data and uh, gives you a really good uh, ballpark estimate for how much uh, electrolytes you should consume. So take that sweat test, it's free, it's on precisionhydration.com. And if you want to try their products, you can get 20% off your entire order until the end of August only. So hurry up with the promo code thattriathlonshow20. Thattriathlonshow is all one word, all caps. Or you can try your first box or tube for free with the code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka. Roka is the brand that redefines the standard in wetsuits, trisuits, eyewear, and uh, several other triathlon endurance sports categories. They started as a small hobby, garage hobby thing in, uh, in Austin, Texas, as an attempt to simply make the fastest uh, possible wetsuit on the market. And, uh, and that little hobby project has uh, grown to become what is Roka today, which is a world leader in manufacturing not only wetsuits, but uh, all sorts of other apparel, which is really, really fascinating to see. The one thing that has remained the same is uh, the dedication to to trying to perfect and eke out the maximum amount of performance possible of every single product that Roka produces. And that is why I really, really support the brand and, and like it so much. You can check them out on roka.com and use the promo code TTS, all caps, to get 20% off your entire order. 
So today's first question is uh, from uh, Daniel in Germany who writes, Hi Michael, I have a question for the Q&A. How do you set up your Training Peaks dashboard? Uh, first and foremost, I'm interested in the performance management chart. Do you track TSS just for running and cycling? Thank you for your question, Daniel. This is uh, fairly straightforward to answer uh, in terms of how I set it up, at least, because I have every single chart available in Training Peaks in my dashboard. And this may sound redundant, and it actually, in many ways, is redundant, because most of the time I use maybe a quarter of those charts or less. But inevitably, there will be the odd case where I do want to look at one of my non-favorite charts, charts, the one that I use much less frequently. So I actually found it more effective to have all charts in the dashboard from the start rather than having to add and remove charts all the time when these situations do come up. And uh, then I just look at the charts that I want to look at whenever I want to look at them. And I don't, uh, I don't, when I go to the dashboard, I don't look at all the charts in the dashboard. I have a specific purpose for going there, something specific that I want to uh, look up. And uh, the setup that I have in my dashboard is uh, such that I have one type of chart repeated uh, three to four times typically. So to give you an example, the duration by week chart is, uh, uh, is basically a, a chart that shows you week by week. So on the x-axis, you have uh, the, the different weeks that is set in your time range that you have set in the, the main setting in the upper left corner. So let's say that you have 10 weeks shown in the chart. On each of those weeks, you will then have a bar that represents, and the height of that bar represents how much you trained in terms of uh, duration, so total hours and minutes in, in that week. And I have this chart uh, four times repeated. So first, all workout types together, then specifically for the swim, bike, and run separately. So I can look at the total duration, uh, full stop, and the swim duration, the bike duration, and the run duration. And the same applies for, for example, the distance by week chart. Although for that one, I actually only care about the swim and the run distances, so I only have two of them. And even though I don't look that much at the TSS, but I do have them set up, so same sort of thing. Uh, total TSS, then swim, bike, and run TSS separately. So four charts as well for the TSS by week. And, uh, and the same sort of principle repeats itself on and on and on for all the different chart types that there is, basically. Uh, the thing that I should do with my setup, with my dashboard, but that I don't have at the moment actually, is I should have all my most used charts at the top and the least used ones at the bottom. I don't have them that way because back in the day when I set up my dashboard, I had some idea for why the current setup would be good. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but uh, now I just simply, I know exactly how far to scroll. So I immediately get to the chart I want to look at. I really don't waste any time doing that. It's uh, it's so automatic, so ingrained in my muscle memory. So uh, so that's why I haven't even bothered changing. But probably at some point I, I will do that, put my most useful charts at the top. Uh, all this being said, let me list the charts that I think are the most important and that I use the most in the dashboard. And if I had the opportunity, if TrainingPeaks offered the, uh, the feature to set up several dashboards, I would definitely have a dashboard with just these charts because these, that would be the dashboard I would look at 90% of the time probably. So, uh, First, I have all the duration by week charts that I mentioned. So we see week by week uh, with a bar, how much total volume was done that week and by discipline as well, depending on how you have the chart set up. 
Then I have the distance by week that I also mentioned, same sort of thing, but for the swim and run, I also want to see the total, uh, total distance. And for the run, I actually have a third chart uh, in this category, which is the longest run distance by week. So for example, let's say that, uh, that one, one week it was 15 kilometer and then the next week it was 18 kilometers and it was 20. I'll see that in the bar chart as well. So taking simply the longest run from each week and drawing that in the, in the bar chart, because that is important when I plan what the next long run is going to be. I can't have too big of a jump. Uh, from what has been done before basically uh, then number three here in my different types of charts i have four of these types of charts that are the ones that i look at almost all the time uh, these are the fitness history tables and what they do is they have uh, it's like a, a grid so uh, on vertically on the y-axis you have month by month uh, so you have the months shown and then horizontally you have either distance or duration so you can think of it if we take duration as an example you have five seconds you have 10 seconds you have 30 seconds you have one minute five minutes 20 minutes 60 minutes uh, that sort of thing so then i can see for example for the let's say i'm interested in your five minute power then i can look at from this month from august uh, back to july june may april and so on i can scroll back pretty far back it doesn't go forever unfortunately that's a bit of a uh, a bit of a problem with those charts but it goes a fairly long i think it's 12 12 months maybe that it goes so so i can see what your best five minute power uh, for each month has been and actually they also show the last four weeks on a week by week basis so i can see that as well if that interests me although usually i'm more interested in the month by month and, and I have several of these fitness history tables. So uh, I have peak heart rate by duration. And those are for, and I have that for running and for biking. Then I have peak pace by both distance and duration for running specifically. And, uh, for, and then I have peak power by duration. And that is for both uh, cycling and running because uh, a lot of my athletes have running power meters. So those are the fitness history tables, extremely useful. I use them a lot to actually validate training zones and also when uh, when looking at setting target bases for races. Uh, these are the charts that I will go to and figure out what has been done in training and based on that, what can realistically be achieved in, in racing. If we are looking at training zones, for example, I can find the peak heart rate. Of course, I will then go in and check at the actual file to see that it wasn't a heart rate artifact because those do occur and you need to uh, you need to take care of that uh, but uh, but it will give me an opportunity to find yeah i can also go the other way around and look at for example 20 minute peak 20 minute power and peak 60 minute power and and that way i can i can assess whether the currently set ftp is uh, more or less accurate and i can do manual updates to that if i see that well actually this athlete has done a uh, quite a high 60 minute power here so probably their ftp should be a bit higher than what it's set at so so it's really useful for those sort of scenarios as well and the finally number four in the charts that i use and actually the the top three that i mentioned already those ones i use all the time like really all the time and i I don't think I could live without any one of those three. I could potentially live without number four here, but I still use it a lot and really like it. And uh, these are the pie charts on completed duration and planned duration. So by pie charts, it means that basically we see a percentage breakdown of how much you trained in swimming and cycling and running uh, for the time range that is set again in the time range setting. Let's say that we're looking at the last three months. Uh, so did you do 
45% cycling, 35% running, and whatever is left, 20% swimming, uh, or something like that. And uh, and I can see if that matches the plan, the duration more or less. So it's it's a tool for me to see what I have planned, and I can actually do that uh, in advance because I can look in the future as well with the time setting and and see how much I plan for the next block and see whether that matches what I sort of want the athlete to do. But also I can use that to check the compliance of the athlete. Is it quite often the swim that uh, gets missed or is it the, the bike or what, what is, or is the athlete actually very good at being compliant with the program? So, so that's a great tool as well. And I would say that 90% of the times that I look at a chart, any chart, it is one of these four types of charts. These all provide very actionable data for me, which is key. And a lot of the other charts, I don't necessarily, I, I don't always get actionable data from them. But there are scenarios when I do, which is why I still have them in the dashboard. And there are specific cases where I will go and, and have a look at another chart. But most of the time, it's the four ones that I mentioned already. So duration by week, distance by week, fitness history tables, and completed duration pie charts. Regarding TSS and the PMC, I do have it set up in the dashboard and I have it in as a combined pmc for all free sports together but also have it separately for run plus bike and i have it separately for each of the three disciplines as well but as i discussed on several previous q a's i find more and more that tss often poses more questions than it gives answers and i can't really trust it to be frank not from a data quality standpoint because i do try to take care of that but i just think that the correlation between tss and performance is quite weak and of course, somebody with a very high average TSS is likely going to be a lot fitter than somebody with a very low TSS and therefore perform better. That's not the point I'm getting at. The point is that if I have an athlete that averages 800 TSS per week, uh, even if I, I might, I don't need to look at the TSS necessarily. I might change their train, training. And let's say that it turns out that based on the training changes I do, uh, the TSS happens to go down to 700 per week on average and they perform better. Or I might change their training and it actually goes up to 900 TSS per week. Again, I'm not looking to make a TSS change. I'm looking to make a training change. And what happens is that TSS goes up uh, because of I was maybe looking more at duration or things like that. And uh, that might have been the case in the first case as well. Or I might have been looking at intensity, reducing intensity in the former case, which drops TSS to from 800 to 700. In both cases, the, uh, the performance may go up, which just shows that like basing... Basing a lot of your training on on TSS is really not that smart when, in my opinion, uh, again, this this is my opinion only, but I don't think that the correlation is very strong at all. And this goes even if I know the athlete and their training. Uh, I, I think that actually I get much more insightful data and actionable data from looking at the duration, and I can have a much better likelihood of correctly predicting how uh, their performance will respond by increasing or decreasing their duration rather than than by increasing or decreasing their tss so so that's just uh, the sort of a backdrop of why i don't really look that much at the pmcs and the tss scores anymore i i don't i do still glance at it as, especially when an athlete has a race coming up i glance at what their ctl and tsb va values are uh, leading up to the race and uh and checking in what it was on race day and so on and trying to basically see if there are any patterns there there are some very very broad patterns but the truth is they are so broad that that's another reason that the pmc has kind of fallen out of favor for me 
And to answer your question, if I look at just a bike plus run, uh, no, when I do these glances, I typically look at first of all the combined PMC, the swim plus bike plus run, because it's all endurance training after all. Uh, but uh, if an athlete has a particularly good or bad bike or run or swim, then maybe I'll look at also at the specific uh, discipline that uh, that is in question here. But again, I, I don't see a clear correlation between anymore between TSB or CTL and performance on race day. Uh, again, I just think it's much easier and much more predictable to work with durations. For example, I have a pretty standard taper pattern based on duration uh, and intensity, but uh, we're talking about duration here mostly uh, because intensity more or less stays the same, but it becomes well, proportionally it stays the same but absolutely it becomes uh, there's much less intensity of course and maybe even a bit less proportionally e either way that's not the point here but when it comes to duration the pattern that i have is that uh, in the first week of taper we drop volume to 70 to 80 percent of peak volume so uh, so it's not a big drop but let's say you trained 20 hours during your peak week then you will be training uh, 14 to 16 hours during the second week out from the race and in race week, we drop the volume to 50% or less of peak volume. So, so less than, in this case, less than 10 hours for the 20-hour athlete. And, uh, and for the 20-hour athlete, it would actually be probably to less than 40%. I might drop it to, to eight hours or something like that uh, during the goal race week. And that seems to give very good results most of the time. So hope that answers your question, Daniel. Next question is from Christoph in Lisbon who writes, uh, Hello, Michael. First of all, I would like to congratulate you on your podcast. Really great content and guests. Uh, now on to my question, which is about volume versus frequency. I am a triathlete focused on half Ironmans and I do my own planning. Uh, I have the question about whether to focus more on more workouts with lesser volume or fewer workouts with more volume. As an example, during base training where I have a weekly volume of six hours for bike training, uh, would it be best to do five workouts as one two-hour ride and four one-hour rides, or to do four workouts as one two-hour ride, two one-and-a-half-hour rides, and one one-hour ride, or even just three workouts? Uh, so thank you, Christoph, for your question. In, this is a bit individual, of course, uh, but and it depends on the goal race. It also depends on the level of the athlete. I'll get on to that in a little bit. In your example here, focusing on half and full races, and I think you are uh, probably intermediate or, or advanced in your level as an athlete, I would make one of those rides, even in your base training far out from the races, I would make it longer than two hours. So something, it could be with six hours, it could be something like 2.5 plus 1.5 plus 1 plus 1. So we would go with four rides in that case. The 1.5 hour ride can be a quality ride and uh, one of the, so some intervals, one of the one hour rides can have uh, some technical elements to it. It could be cadence work or it could be, uh, could be maybe even some short and sharp speed work, like very short sprints. And uh, the, the last one hour ride could be just an easy ride, something like that. But I would say even for a half Ironman, but especially if you were to train for an Ironman, then I would probably recommend that maybe every other week during base training far out from the races uh, again, we could drop down to just three workouts per week. Again, just every other week. 
And uh, in that week, we would try to build up that long ride and make it longer. So so we could go to three hours, and then the next uh, uh, week that we do that, we would go to three and a half hours and so on, uh, to, to a degree. So maybe as long as you're indoors, if you are not somebody who is a bit crazy like me and some of my athletes, we like to do long rides indoors, uh, going up to five hours or longer in some cases. Uh, but uh, for most, three and a half hours is is more than enough, and and I would say that in base training, it's definitely more than enough for training for a half Ironman, especially. But but still, we would like to maybe maybe every other week drop down from four rides to three rides, assuming that you have the same six hours to train with, and uh, make sure that one of those rides is a bit longer than the two point five hours that I had in that previous example with four rides per week. Uh, for the run, things can be a bit different. And uh, in base training, far out from the races again, uh, you probably aren't going to run any longer than 75 minutes for quite a long period of your base training. Maybe 90 minutes. It depends a bit on your level and your injury history. It actually depends a lot on that. Uh, so uh, so you, it could be 90 minutes. But for many athletes, actually, there's no need to run any longer than 75-minute long runs for uh, for base training that's my opinion uh, but you could still be doing quite a lot of running just by by building frequency so when it comes to building run volume it definitely happens first through more frequency and only later on as you get closer to your key races you would start to increase the duration of that that long run of course this is due to the higher injury risk when when doing those run, long runs individually compared to cycling where it really isn't that's much more of an injury risk. Well, I mean, of course it is, but comparatively speaking, cycling is uh, uh, is is a fairly is a sport that that isn't that high of a risk of injury compared to running. So, so that's why we do things a bit differently when it comes to running, or that's what I recommend anyway. For the swim, it uh, it does depend a bit on your pool availability as well. Like how close you have your pool. Is it a, a hassle to get there, and does it take up a lot of your commuting time? Uh, but I do like to fairly quickly build up to one longer swim per week. Uh, a longer swim here might still only be 75 minutes or so, depending on your overall swim volume. And also depending on your level. If you're a pretty slow swimmer, then 75 minutes might not be necessary. Maybe you only go to 60 minutes, but you try to get more frequent swim workouts in. Because I think that for somebody who isn't a very good swimmer, frequency trumps duration of individual workouts for sure. Uh, just to get more used to get more frequent exposure to swimming and and feel for the water and therefore more rapid learning of the actual technical elements of swimming. In general, to give some general guidelines, I think that for people newer to triathlon or endurance sports, frequency is more important and less risky. So that's what I'd recommend going for as you're more at the beginning end of the spectrum or starting out in the sport. For more intermediate to advanced athletes, you do want to and need to think about what the right duration for your long workout in each or workouts in each discipline should be based on where you are in your season and what your goal race is, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, so you need, do need to consider that, like, for example, for an Ironman athlete, uh, you still you already during base training want to do, be doing some some fairly long bike rides not we don't need to do five hours on the trainer uh for winter long definitely not but but you want to build up to that three hour level i think if if you have uh, ambitions to to perform well it doesn't mean though that just because the individual workout duration becomes more important as we get more advanced 
it doesn't mean that we go from one end of the spectrum to the other. We still need to find the right balance between frequency and the volume of individual workouts. And frequency remains very important for athletes of all levels. So uh, to put it like this, I think this is going to illustrate what I mean here. I think there is a massive drop in potential performance when you go from three workouts per week in in a single discipline, let's say uh, cycling or let's say swimming, uh, to two. So there you see a massive drop in performance when the frequency goes from three to two. There is also a clear drop-off when you go to four, from four to three. But uh, compared to the massive drop-off, this is clear, but it is not as big. And there is a drop-off when you go from five to four, but it is quite small. Actually, for some athletes, if you are already at your limit, you're already pushing the limits of what you can handle, then uh, it might be a, a negative to go from four to five for sure. So that needs to be taken into account as well. But for somebody who can do five workouts per week, it can still be a drop-off in potential performance to a drop-down frequency, but it is going to be quite small, to be honest. Hope this helps, Christoph, and thank you for your question. Final question for today is from Bertrand, who uh, I don't know if I have your location, Bertrand, but either way, Bertrand writes, uh, Hi, Michael, I'm a firefighter officer, and sometimes while on night duty, I end up not sleeping at all or very little while still having to work the next day. So long naps are out of the picture. Following your maximum adaptation, not maximum stress principle, I know that in that case, I'm not primed to trigger any useful adaptation to a stressful workout. But still, I'd like to know if there's anything I can do these days. Can I do easy running or cycling or low to moderate intensity swimming? Uh, Can I do strength training, which to me is the easiest to do uh, close to its normal intensity on these days or is there anything else that i can do Uh, thanks in advance for your opinion Uh, all right great question bertrand and uh, as i'm sure you know there are a lot of variables to this question of course Uh, but let's start off from the most important points first you are absolutely right when you are sleep deprived like that there's no point trying to do a very stressful workout like an interval workout or or even a long run or a long ride Uh, second if you choose to do a not so taxing workout uh, like one of the ones that you mentioned some uh, easier running or cycling or low to moderate intensity swimming or even strength training then follow the guideline that you should feel as good or better when you finish the workout as you did when you started it i repeat that because it's important you should feel as good or better when you finish the workout as you did when you started it And uh, I have a great personal example from today by the time that I record this episode because it was very warm tonight and I didn't sleep very well and felt tired and lethargic waking up. And also my heart rate variability, which uh, I measure with HRV for training, and that's actually something that I'd recommend that you do as well. It was was a clear drop in my HRV. It was in the red. uh, so, So that was something that I took note of, even though I'd never let HRV control my training but i take note of it and uh, it informs my decision decisions rather than uh, rather than drives my decisions so what ended up what i ended up doing was that i i well i got up i got breakfast and everything i worked from 6 30 to 10 and i didn't feel dead <laughs> i didn't feel quite good feel very good but i didn't feel dead at least so i decided to do a one hour easy spin at 10 o'clock in the morning and an easy spin here that was 50 percent of my ftp uh, my heart rate was less than 100 was the average heart rate for for the workout and uh, so you don't need to go quite that easy if uh, you if you're not like super tired 
uh, but it doesn't hurt to do do that either. And the great thing here for me was that I could feel myself starting to feel feel better as I went through the spin. And and that gave me confidence that, okay, this is actually good. I'll keep doing it. So I, I did that one-hour spin. And then since I had a good response to, the, to that easy bike, a bit later in the afternoon, I went to do an easy swim just to keep up my feel for the water. And uh, again, this comes back to the frequency question that we had previously. I want to keep up my frequency when swimming. So, But rather than doing some anything extreme, I just swam... Uh, an hour, uh, 3,500 meters, slightly more than one hour perhaps, and mostly easy, but I did a little bit of strength works, so swimming with bands only, and I did two sets of 12 times 50 meter with descending speed, so descending in groups of three, so zone one, zone two, zone three, and then going back, zone one, zone two, zone three, effort levels, uh, that sort of thing, and the second set of 12 by 50 I did with paddles. So nothing here was very hard, and no, nothing more than 50 meters at zone three. That was the uh, the hardest thing that I did, really. Uh, but and nothing caused significant heart rate spikes. But again, I felt better and better through the session, and changes in pace felt like they woke up my my nervous system a little bit. And you can do similar things to that in running or cycling by doing things like strides or doing short cadence spin-ups on the bike. Uh, but for the most part, uh, try to keep keep a very easy intensity, uh, and and then you can add these sort of uh, things that are designed to to sort of try to see if you if your nervous system is uh, is awake or not. Strength and conditioning, yes, that is potentially possible. Uh, maybe not an explosive strength session or a maximum strength session, but something a bit more moderate that is designed to to maintain your strength gains. Or something focused on core strength and stability. So absolutely doable to, to do those things as well. Again, keep in mind that the guiding principle for you will be that after the workout, you should feel as good or better as before. And uh, you should feel that it doesn't make you more tired. Uh, if anything, it should make you less tired for the rest of the day. So for the work that you still have to do that day. Also think about whether doing training versus not doing training is impacting the following day or not after you've had a proper night's sleep when getting off your shift. And I do think, as mentioned, that heart rate variability, HRV, could be useful for you to try in uh, in your line of work. First of all, perhaps uh, if after a night of no sleep, if your HRV really, really tanks, and I mean drops extremely, then that's probably something that you should take note of and take as a sign that Maybe complete rest is better than anything else today. Uh, if it is low that the, like mine was t- this morning, then it might not mean that you don't train, but that you just make sure that you keep it very easy. Also, another thing that HRV could do for you is that if you do end up training that day, so you do maybe an easy easy spin as we discussed, then follow the trends of what happens to your HRV the following day. Does it still come up just as fine assuming that you have a good night's sleep the night after as it would have if you had not trained the day before so you need to gather some data there and see what happens but if the hrv can come back up to its normal level normal baseline level even though you trained the, during that tired day that you had before then that's probably an indication that the training did not extend the recovery period that your autonomic nervous system needed which is a good thing but if, on the other hand, you notice that if you train on those days when you haven't slept, that means that your HRV remains low even after a night sleep, then maybe maybe it might be better to actually don't train on those days because it might be that uh, you're actually getting so little sleep that 
that even the little amount of training that you do uh, causes even more recovery demands on on your nervous system and and that's something that is going to in the long run give you less adaptation rather than more adaptation so i hope that this helps bertrand uh, thank you for a really great question and that's a wrap for this week's Q&A. Thank you to everybody who has been leaving reviews and ratings for the podcast. Uh, I'm uh, up at 499 reviews now. Uh, sorry, ratings. Reviews are the written things and ratings are just when you leave the stars. So 499 ratings. Please, please, please take this week and help push the podcast past that 500 barrier now. And please also write a review when you rate it, even if it's super short, even if it's just a fantastic podcast. Those reviews are like four times as valuable as just a rating, even though a rating in itself is, is of course, great. But if you can add a little bit of, of text to that, that goes even longer. Uh, I want to read one, which is from Alex Fuller Try in the United States, who writes, for those that want evidence-based action plans, five stars. I'm an upper pack triathlete in part because of the great insights that that triathlon shows, that triathlon show has given. The show gives the science behind how to improve and actionable ways to incorporate into training. The guests vary on training approaches and there's no single here's what you should do, but rather multiple points of view and suggestions to try. It is definitely a podcast to listen to if you want to improve as a triathlete. Uh, thank you. That's a great to hear, Alex. Uh, really appreciate that. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get a personal, personalized hydration strategy for your next race. And use the promo code that triathlon show, all in word, all caps, to get your first box or two for free. Or the promo code that triathlon show to zero to get 20% off your entire order through the end of August. And thank you to Roka for sponsoring that triathlon show. You can find wetsuits, trisuits, swim skins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear on roka.com, and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.